Hey, you're listening to the Subclub Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores. Let's get into the show. Hello, I'm your host, David Bernard. For the first time ever, I'm flying solo today. Revenue Cat CEO Jacob Eiding is busy CEOing. My guest today is Eric Sufer. Having worked in growth and strategy roles at consumer tech companies such as Wooga and Rovio, Eric has a depth and breadth of experience with mobile apps and games that few can match. He also founded and sold marketing business intelligence company Agamemnon and is an active investor in the mobile gaming and ad tech categories. Over the past year, Eric has written extensively about app tracking transparency and the future of mobile advertising on his trade blog, Mobile Dev Memo. On the podcast, I talk with Eric about the value destruction of app tracking transparency, the limitations of SK Ad Network, and how to thrive as an app developer in this new paradigm. Hey, Eric, thanks for being on the podcast. David, thank you for having me on the podcast. So um, we're going to start off with uh, a bit of a dead horse that's been beaten over and over again. Uh, Apple's motivation in uh, enacting app tracking transparency but, but I did want to take kind of a different perspective on it. Um, the, the most interesting thing to me personally about Apple's motivation with app tracking transparency is, is what it says about what they are going to do in the future is, you know, did they build SK Ad Network purposely handicapped or did they not really understand how handicapped it was? You know, were they really trying to kill Facebook or was that a kind of uh, a side benefit. And, and I think this, that their motivation's important because it, it kind of forecasts um, what changes they may or not make moving forward sure. as they start to see the impact. So I think the, the, the first thing I wanted to ask you was, how do you see Apple's reaction and maybe um, how they perceive ATT to be going now that we're seeing Snap drop 25% after a quarterly earnings report and see kind of more of the disruption that you and others were predicting, but, um, but maybe Apple didn't quite see coming. So how do you, how do you think Apple sees this going currently? And what does that say about the future of, of privacy on iOS? Right. So I think that Apple's primary motivation was not to capture mobile advertising market share. I, I don't think that was a primary motivation. I think that's happened. Um, and I think that they expected that to happen. Um, but I don't, I don't think that was, that was the, the sort of primary driver of this decision. What I, what I think they wanted to do was there's kind of like a big picture idea here. And then sort of like an immediate consequence idea. I think what they didn't like, I think what Apple did not like was that they had kind of lost control over, uh, content discovery on, on the iPhone. Right. So, when, when the app store was first launched, I mean, that was how you discovered apps, right? It was, it was through going to the app store and, and, uh, you know, some small part search, but then in, in large part, just like the editorial curation that, that, you know, Apple exposes there. Right. Um, and, and that changed over the years and, and, you know, up until kind of the, the announcement or, or the, the enactment of, of ATT, the, the way that people discovered apps, um, was through advertising, right? And primarily Facebook advertising. And so, you know, Apple totally lost control. It's, it's it, you know, the sort of, the, 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 the content that people interacted with 
on their phones was was not the result of any sort of like deliberate decision on Apple's part or, or sort of like deliberate consideration, right? It just so happened to be whatever could scale ads, you know, the best, right? Like whatever could scale, whatever content, whatever companies could scale their ads the most efficiently, that's what, you know, people interacted with. And that's what, you know, became dominant on the platform. And Apple really had no say in that, right? Um, and so my, my sense is that's kind of like short term sort of like kind of narrow aperture view of this. It's like, well, they just wanted to regain control of that. They wanted to be the kingmakers. They wanted to sort of be the tastemakers, the people that decided, the party that decided like what became popular on the iPhone, how the iPhone was used, right? Um, and I mean, that's, it's, I think if you've worked in, in gaming, especially, but if you've worked in mobile apps at all, and you've ever had to go and, you know, go, go through the whole process of like pitching your app to Apple, um, and sort of like pleading for featuring, you know, that that's what they want. They, they liked having that control because that allowed them to sort of percolate their new iOS features into the app community through just sort of like. Uh, almost like horse trading. It's like, well, okay, you want featuring, well, we're happy to give you featuring, but you've got to integrate X, Y, Z thing into your app. And once you do that, we're happy to feature you, right? Um, that that was sort of the, that was the, the, the sort of the negotiating process, right? And like, you know, that, that process, even that process itself became less important and less prominent in like the life of a developer over the last few years. Like 2012 yeah. to 15, that's what you did. Every time you were launching a new app, or even if you're doing like a major update, you flew to, you flew to San Francisco, you went to Cupertino, you went into a, a, a conference room at Apple HQ and you pitched somebody, right? And like that just stopped being something that, that people did. Like just pe people kind of realized that, you know, even if we get featuring, it's not gonna be that meaningful for our business. What we really need to be able to nail, what we, what we have to do, our success is dependent on our ability to scale the product with, with paid advertising, you know, and explicitly, you know, specifically through, through Facebook, right? So, so I think that was the primary motivation to regain that control, right? Now, I think there's a bigger picture idea here. There's like a bigger picture motivation or, or like projection here, which is that, you know, we're, we're moving into a paradigm where, you know, the phone that you have, the, the device that you have that you consume content with is like totally unconstrained um, in terms of what it accesses, right? Like, and, and, and how it accesses content. And that's what, that's, that's the sort of, that's the sort of behavioral, um, norm that that people are moving into, right? It's like they just expect their favorite stuff to be available from whatever device they have in their hand at that moment. As long as it's connected to the internet, they expect to be able to connect to Disney Plus, to Hulu, to Netflix, to Facebook, to anything um, that they use every day. And like you get to a point where, you know, if you run this kind of gatekeeping platform, right? Like at the App Store or Google Play or whatever. If, if, if users have leapfrogged that kind of paradigm into like, no, my favorite content is always available. It's, it's, you know, sort of like, um, just, just persistent in the cloud and I should be able to access it however I want at any, at any given point in time. Um, then you've lost control of that sort of, of that gatekeeper positioning. And I, I feel like what Apple wanted to do is like, they, they, they know that that's inevitable, like we'll get there, but they wanted to like prolong the sort of dominance and the sort of prominence of the app store in terms of, you know, the, the consumer relationship, right? Like that's the first stop. You've got to go through them to get to the content. Um, because then that also like, that also like provides them with, with some sort of um, just leverage over the, over the developer, right? And I think we're, we've, I think we've probably accelerated past that, but, but maybe not, maybe this, maybe this, you know, buys two to three more years of, okay, well, I have an iPhone. That means I, I go through the app store to get content, right? Or I have an Android. Maybe that means I go through Google Play to get to content. Not that like, 
it doesn't really matter what device I'm using. I'm using my Samsung TV or my iPhone or my iPad or my Facebook portal or whatever, or my, my uh, Amazon uh, Echo. I want to get to the content that I have, you know, uh, available to me in a persistent way in the cloud, right? And so I think that was, that was also the primary motivation or that was part of the primary motivation, but that was like sort of like the bigger picture consequence of it. Right. Where, I mean, where do you put Apple's kind of stated motivation of privacy in this hierarchy of, of motivations and, and outcomes? Because, you know, a lot of people have said, oh, well, Apple was clearly acting anti-competitively to favor their own ad business and crush these other ad businesses. It was, you know, primarily driven by the greed to expand their ad revenue. And then I think yours is really interesting as far as like the control. But then, of course, Apple goes and just said in the quarter of results recently and has stated over and over again that it was 100% privacy motivated. Um, do you just not buy that? No, not at all. And I don't, I don't necessarily even think at this moment that consumer privacy um, has been benefited or protected as a result of this, right? And we can get into that in a second, but you know, I've been publishing a lot about, they're still allowing fingerprinting. They said they wouldn't. That's in the policy, right? It's explicit. Like there's no ambiguity there and they're allowing for it, right? And they're not right. policing it. and they could because they've done it in the past. And so I think if you wanted to be protective of privacy, that would be one of the things that you would prioritize is preventing that from happening. But, and you don't think that not that, I mean, diving into fingerprinting real quick, do, do you think that it's potentially that they're just delaying the enforcement to kind of smooth some of the disruption that tra app tracking transparency has already caused? Because them not enforcing it immediately doesn't mean they're not going to enforce it. So, but I, I find it baffling as well that they're not. So, do you see them enforcing it soon? Or do you think that this really is an indication that they don't actually care about privacy and that it's not ever gonna be enforced? They could enforce it at some point. And like there, there, there was like, I think, kind of a widespread belief that in the developer community that there was gonna be a grace period, right? They would introduce ATT, but they're gonna allow for fingerprinting for some amount of time because you, you know, if, if you just you know, made this very radical change and it was like absolute from day one, the impact would have been even more severe than, than what we saw. Um, so I, there was a belief that there would be a grace period, but you know, we're going on like four months now. Right. And, and the thing is, you know, my, my sense was when, as soon as they, as, cause they, you know, they talked about private relay at WWDC this year. And I was like, oh, okay. That's how they do it. Right. Cause, and I've talked a bunch about how it would be clunky to police fingerprinting through app store review, the app store review process. Right. I talked about that in a piece I just wrote two weeks ago or last week, and it would be clunky, but they could have introduced this in, in private relay. I thought that's that's what they were going to do, or at the very least, they would roll private relay out because it applies to to you know Safari traffic now. And they would say, look, well, we have to reach parity on our treatment of the web and our treatment of in-app traffic, and so therefore, you know, maybe for whatever technical reason, we can't uh, we can't uh, obfuscate the IP address of in-app traffic. It'd be too expensive, or it's it's a technical challenge that we haven't solved yet. But like this is the moment, you know ad tech when you must stop fingerprinting. And I think if they said that, you know, these ad tech companies would, right? Because the way that they've sort of implemented this in a lot of these solutions is it's like an option, right? Like they say, you can turn it off if you want, right? Because I think they, these ad tech companies are surprised. They thought fingerprinting was gonna be prevented or, or policed 
early on, maybe not on day one, but you'd get like two weeks a month. Right. Um, and so they kind of introduced this as like an optional feature, right? And then, you know, they, they present it as like, a, hey, it's a feature for developers if they want it. And so, you know, it's it's something that they could switch off and they, they, they're ready to switch off, I think. So I think even if, if Apple just sort of like, you know, kind of pantomimed those motions, people would stop doing it because, okay, it's, it's actually, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of like actually against policy now versus just before where it was like ignored. But, you know, I, I thought they were going to introduce it in iOS 15 for that reason, or, or at least again, like just make the, go through the motions of saying that, right. that it's, it's not allowed. But, but so just, just back, back to your question about like, where does privacy sit in the, in the sort of list of motivations? I think it's probably, so my, my, the hard, the hard time that I have with like reconciling this idea that like, and you hear this a lot, like Apple cares about policy. Like people say that or privacy, Apple cares about privacy. How could Apple, Apple's not a person. Apple's a, Apple's a, a corporate structure. There's, there's however many employees at Apple, they don't all agree on things, right? Who, and Tim Cook is not a dictator. He can't just run the company like that. Apple shareholders, you know, have some control. His board has some control, right? And so, you know, or the, at least they have influence. And so like uh, the Apple has, a, it can't have, it's, it doesn't have like a monolithic opinion about stuff. It's not an entity in its own right. And so like, I just don't buy this idea that a company can care about some abstract concept, right? Like. Here's another question for you. Like Apple makes the Apple Watch, right? It's a health tracker. Does Apple care about your health? Do they, are they really concerned? Are they genuinely, you know, invested in your health, right? Or they want to sell something, right? And so I think the idea with privacy is, okay, it gives us an opportunity to, to strike a juxtaposition position against Android, which, you know, has, is, is kind of perceived, I, I believe, as like less sort of like privacy set safe. Um, but even Android has gone to great lengths or Google has gone to great lengths to sort of bring privacy to the fore on Android. A lot of it's just about informing consumers about their data that being accessed. But it's, you know, still they've done some things. Right. So anyway, I just I don't believe that a, a, a company, a corporate entity can care about an abstract concept. Right. So putting that aside, what does privacy buy them? It buys them that juxtaposition and then it buys them cover. Right. It, it buys them cover to do all this other stuff. Right. And then to and, to, and then to spin up this big narrative that probably helps to sell iPhones. Right. Because. You know what I mean? Or if future you... AR glasses or, you know, exactly. I, I mean, I think in some ways positioning themselves, they, they care about privacy insofar as it's an incredible marketing tool for them. And, sure. and it, it gives them cover for future devices. They become more and more and more and more private. I mean, this thing that you wear on your rest, you know, biometric sensors and tracking your right. sleep and everything else, you know, customers are going to feel more comfortable wearing AR glasses that have cameras on them when it's Apple branded than when it's Facebook branded. I mean, there's been backlash with the, yeah. the Ray-Ban yeah. uh, glasses from Facebook. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I get you, you know, they don't, I, you know, the Apple fanboy in me wants to believe that, you know, Apple, you know, wants to do good in the world, but I, I've, I've since lost my Apple religion. And, uh, but I, but I do think to a certain extent that they care about, they do care about privacy and whether or not any of that's motivated by goodwill or otherwise, it's incredible marketing for them. And so that being the case, you know, and, and this is where maybe our opinions diverge or, or at least how we interpret some of, of what's been going on. I still am of the opinion, as naive as it may be, that, that privacy was the primary motivation for them, whether altruistic or marketing or, you know, whatever other, you know, reasons they have to be, to be positioning themselves this way. I still think that that, that was primary and, and that, and I don't know that they even fully 
understood or expected some of the the things that have been happening. I, I think they thought SKI Network was a better solution than it actually is. And I don't know that they expected to see a company like Snap that is actually fairly aligned with them, yeah. at least, you know, again, in marketing and, and a public perception as being a more privacy focused company. And to see this company that has been kind of rooting and talking positively about app tracking transparency and see them drop 25% in a single day because, and and then say specifically, it's because SK Ad Network isn't delivering. Yeah. I mean, I, I still think personally that this has more to do with Apple not understanding and not listening to the industry, which, which we've just seen for decades, right? Like Apple yeah. doesn't listen. They're not good at like receiving outside feedback on roadmaps on on their APIs on anything else. They they think they know what to do and they think as a product company they can just build this product and bring it to the world and it's going to be the best thing since sliced bread. And SK Ad Network is just another um another example of them trying that approach and then just falling flat on their face. And and I think this is important because if that is the case and if they really if the primary motivation really was privacy, then maybe we do see an SKI network 3.0 that's way better than this current one after they realize they've destroyed tens of billions of dollars of value and also potentially handicap their own platform because as ad efficiency goes down and as apps struggle to gain traction, they lose too. So yeah, I mean, I guess just, I'd love to hear your kind of response to that because I know we, we probably disagree on this a bit. I guess it doesn't really matter, like, if, you know, if we, I, I don't know, at this point, it kind of seems like semantics a little bit, because it's like, well, they care about privacy, because privacy is a good marketing message. Like, my, my point is, like, I don't think they generally care whether people's data is being accessed by advertising networks, right? I, I don't think they cared about that. So, to, to, the, to the degree that um, it didn't impact, it was, it, was, it was happening sort of unawares, right? Like, or, you know, that these users were, like, sort of unawares. Once it became like a like a sort of social rallying cry around you know facebook and you know it's the congressional testimony and you're listening on our devices and and like once it became something that i think that they could you know exploit then sure then maybe they care about it because it is a differentiator for the products and they can help them sell more products right but but i think so first of all so we are on scanner 3.0 they released 3.0 3.0 is just like a minor improvement so 3.0 added view through attribution and I think it added one more thing. And then also with iOS 15, they allowed the post packs to be sent directly to the advertiser, not just the network. So, I mean, those are improvements, but I don't see them continuing to develop SK ad network. I just, I just don't see that. But I, I think I do, I do agree. I, I agree with you that, that they didn't understand how consequential that this would be to the advertising. I think it's an example of like the left hand, not talking to the right hand. Apple is like a super secretive organization, not just to the outside world. Right. right. Internally, Apple teams are very secretive. Right. And, um, you know, I, I don't know that the App Store team was talking to the iTunes team. Um, I, I mean, I don't even really know how that how how the sort of corporate structure separates those two teams. But my sense is that, like the App Store team, the people that work with developers um, weren't aware of this. Like and I, I've been told that I've been told that they learned about it at WWDC two years right. ago. Right. And then they got a, they had to field a bunch of angry emails and phone calls. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, I think there, there wasn't a whole lot of consensus internally around what the impact of this would be. I think the impact was underestimated. And to be honest, I don't think they would have released something if they knew that it was going to wipe out 
you know, just annihilate a quarter of Snap's market cap in a day. Right. I don't think they would have released something if they knew it was going to annihilate uh, a fifth of Zynga's market cap in a day last quarter. You know what I mean? I, I don't think they, you know, and what we saw with Facebook was that there's like this kind of slow erosion of 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 market cap, you know, from from like the you know all time high a couple months ago. But, you know, the, the damage hasn't been just in, just in terms of stock price hasn't been as 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 severe to Facebook as it has to some of these other companies, um, you know, who weren't really doing the things that Apple wanted, uh, you know, to sort of to mitigate. Right. right. So I, I I don't think that they full, you know, first of all, they didn't, you know, workshop this with advertisers. Like, I know that to be true right. uh, or or I believe that to be true unless some people did it in like, you know, deep secret and they've never revealed it. But I don't think they I don't think that's true. because so I've talked to a lot of people. No one no one was consulted about this that I've spoken with. Um, you know, I don't think that they really, truly grasped how sort of like fundamental performance advertising was or is to a lot of these businesses, right? In, in terms of their just their their sort of, you know, operational success, right? And so I think because of that sort of differential between, I, I think what they thought was going to be the, the result of this and what the actual result was, you know, I, I feel like that does call into question, you know, not only just the wisdom of this, but, you know, how well they can defend it. Right. When, yeah. you know, against maybe some 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 lines of inquiry, um, you know, that that are that are sort of like, you know, kind of uh, more powerful and sort of socially instrumental than than ours, than mine or than 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 app, app advertisers or app developers. Right. I think they've, they've invited a lot of questions about this through through right. a, through the severity of the impact that we've witnessed over the last couple of weeks and months. And, and that's where I, I totally agree with that. And that's been my perception as well. And I talked to folks as well, is that Apple didn't fully understand the implications. And if there were people inside Apple who had a better understanding of what might play out, they didn't have enough of a seat at the table. And that a lot of this was just ivory tower thinking was Apple building SKI network thinking, oh, this is going to be a great solution without like you said, workshopping it with the people who would actually have to use it and then, you know, coming up with a better solution. So then, then my question for you is, okay, you know, you were kind of chicken little for a year. The sky's going to fall. The sky's going to fall. The sky's going to fall. I mean, you've been really one of the most vocal people about how big these impacts were going to be. And you had a lot of people in the industry saying, oh, it's not going to be that bad. It's not going to be that bad. Well, now the sky fell. I mean, you know, a, a public company having 25% of its market value wiped out in a day due to one specific policy from a platform, like the sky is falling. You were right. But then, so now Apple sees it. They can't, they can't avoid seeing it. What do they do from here? You said they're not going to make SK ad network better. You know, are they going to not police fingerprinting to continue to soften the blow? Like, where does it go? That's that's what's so interesting to me about, okay, whatever their motivation, what they do in the future in reaction to what's actually happening now that we're seeing actual results matters, you know, to, to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. And, and one of the things that I put in the notes to talk about is a lot of this value that's being destroyed is not accruing to Apple. It's not as if you know, $100 billion of market cap wiped out of Facebook and Google and Snap and other folks. It's not like Apple is actually capturing that because they don't, they don't have the ad inventory. They don't, they're, they're not a big player in the space. So yeah, where does Apple go from here? Have they painted themselves in a corner? 
Maybe. I mean, I think what I would, you know, if I was at Apple, I'd be worried about, you know, they've got a lot of, there's already, they're already under a lot of scrutiny, right? Like, you know, right. what the, the DOJ, what, just three days ago, decided to re reopen the investigation in that, into Apple um, r related to, to the way they operate the App Store. I just think it's really tough to, to, to maintain this line on one front while, you know, you're obviously having to lose ground on, on another front, right? Because as we've seen, like, there's just been this steady trickle of them, you know, seeding ground to developers or giving up a lot of, you know, the sort of exclusivity and, and um, you know, pr preferential treatment they have with with App Store operation, right? Like, it just feels like may maybe it's, maybe it's, they felt like, well, that, We'll, we'll expand one area of that, that preferential treatment while we're sort of like forced to abandon other uh, areas of preferential treatment. But I, I don't know that they were, I don't, but that would only make sense if they actually really understood how dramatic the consequences of, of ATT would be, which I don't think they did. Um, you know, I don't know. Maybe they have painted themselves in a corner. I mean, I, I don't know. So the, so the thing about SK Ad Network is like the way it was designed, it's got a lot of features that on their own would be smart, you know, tech progressive, right. <laughs> privacy protective um you know mechanisms right but in combination just renders this thing like totally dysfunctional and that's right. the problem because now if they go back and they get rid of any of these given features so like or, or not features but restrictions right so let's say they say okay so first of all i mean and, and i'm assuming most people listening are, are at least familiar with this so i don't want I won't, I won't go into the whole thing you know description of sk ad network from zero but Let's say they give up on the privacy threshold, which would be weird because there's a privacy threshold for Apple search ads to be fair. But yeah. let's say they gave that up, right? Um, then, then okay, you move a little bit towards, you know, something that that is is functional and, and helpful. But you're you've 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 made a, a pretty a sort of like very kind of public facing kind of mea culpa decision, which I don't you know or announcement, right? Which I don't know that is is in Apple's DNA to do that kind of thing. And giving up the privacy threshold would actually allow tracking, which is what they're saying they're trying to prevent. So that's the other problem with giving much ground on some of these things with SK Ad Network. Well, it could, it could. And that's kind of the broader question is like, can SK Ad Network even be saved? And, you know, let's say regulators did come in and say this was completely anti-competitive. What's the solution? I mean, if you roll back and give unique identifiers to every app, you're gonna have all the same unintended consequences that came with the IDFA. So yeah, I mean, that's like four questions rolled into a statement, but can SK Ad Network actually be saved while maintaining some level of privacy? Maybe, but I, so I don't know that you do give up. So I don't, I don't think you totally enable tracking if you give up the privacy threshold. What you'd enable would be the advertiser would be able to link the specific campaign to an individual user in their data environment. Now, if they chose to share that with a third party platform or ads platform, I guess that that would be their decision. I don't think by default it would sort of instantly, you know, make that trackable, right? Because all you're really doing is adding a little bit more context to every post back versus just some. Because you already get, I mean, if you get rid of the privacy threshold, that just means those nulls go away, right? And so you're able to get a little, you're able to track, you're, you're able to sort of observe the less frequent um, transactions, right? Or just tell me what it is. If you tell me what it is, then I can design around that, right? But we don't even know if it's dynamic. They've they've apparently changed it, like without telling anybody. And so all of a sudden the number of null conversion values exploded, right? I mean, that's the thing, just make it public. Because if you do that, then I'm gonna say, you know what? Okay, I'm, I'm gonna design my app such that like, 
the people I care about are going to trigger this or not, right? It's not something that's in its early funnel. It's something that it'll happen. You know, I can build my, I can, I can sort of like intuit, you know, just through like kind of statistical modeling, what, where I need to place this in order for it to trigger the number of people that satisfies the, the privacy threshold such that I get the data that I really need to make decisions. Cause right now you have no idea and you know, I have no idea where to place that. What, what is that? Unless you just experiment a bunch of times, but, but even then, it's it's the the broader environment's too variable because the the campaign could go up and down in terms of like DAU or DNU every day you know what I mean yeah. and then if they change it then there's like a totally unknown exogenous variable there right so it's right. impossible to tune your app such that you you say okay look I get it you're not gonna let me have a, a conversion value if, if fewer than twenty five people did it well I know how much traffic I'm driving through all these campaigns every day so so I need to consolidate my campaign such that each one drives four hundred new new installs every day because i know that you know an eighth of the installs will trigger that thing but those will be the users i really care about right and if you did that then at least i know and i can design everything around that but i don't even know i don't even know if that changes over time relative to the number of installs i'm driving i don't know if you're changing on the back end without telling me like it's just you can't operate in with that kind of opacity it's just it's just not functional and then you've got the 100 campaign id limit you know you've got no creative uh, parameters in the post back, like you just can't do anything with this. Yeah. I mean, that's where it does seem like this was designed as an academic exercise, right? How do we prevent any unique identification of any individual ever from being even remotely possible? And, and it was an academic exercise that they played out. Whereas if they had workshopped it with the people who actually have to use it and had thought through the kind of business use cases, and, and you made a valid point earlier, you don't automatically enable tracking by reducing the privacy threshold. But I think, you know, Apple should kind of rethink some of the priorities around this so that you get better business metrics, even if one or two people can slip through the cracks of being able to be uniquely identified. And, and I think the argument there is like, it doesn't matter at scale. Like if one person slips through the cracks, Facebook is not gonna build technology around finding that person here and there that slips through the cracks because it doesn't matter to their business to find one or two, it matters to, to have more data on everyone. So the campaign ID limit, the creative ID, like all of these seem very, ivory tower thinking that just is not going to play out in the real world. So a few minutes ago, you were saying you don't think Apple will improve SK ad network, but now we're talking about how they could, where does the rubber meet the road? What's going to happen? I mean, I don't, cause I mean, the thing is like, you know, we're just kind of riffing right now, right? Yeah, I think yeah. like if we sat, if we sat down with a chalk, the whiteboard or something, you know, because we, I, I, I wrote an article a couple months back, or I, actually it was like right after this was announced. And I, I kind of like, here's some suggestions. Here, here's, here's what you could do to make SKI network more helpful. And, you know, some really smart people on the mobile dev memo Slack pointed out holes in my analysis. They said, no, if you do this, right. I, I, if, we, if we had enough um, postbacks going, I could sort of encode the idea of V over enough of the postbacks. Like if I had enough postbacks, I could put like one character from the idea of V in every single one, I could get the users uh, so, so that's why you can only have one post back per install, right? Because if you did right. 50 or whatever, like, so that makes sense. So, I mean, the thing is like, if I'm just ripping, what I do believe though, is like, you could, you could either have the, the privacy threshold or the random timer, right? Because I need to, so like ramp the privacy threshold up to a million, I don't care, but let me have real time install accounting because without that, I can't do anything, right? If you, if I, if you're obfuscating even the date of install, then that I can't, I can't do 
in Sauk County. I can't, I can't, I can't uh, assess the economics of my campaigns because I don't even know when the installs are produced and I can't right. make changes to campaigns, right? Without having to shut the whole thing down and wait and to reuse that one precious campaign ID within the, within the sort of like constraint of a hundred, right? So I yeah. mean, like my sense is that like, if, if you just solved for that, allow that, allow real-time install accounting and then do whatever after that you have to do to prevent me from figuring out who those people are. Um, okay, that's fine. But at least then I know this campaign drove this many installs today. These were the targeting parameters. This was the audience I was reaching. This is how much I spent, right? And like, even if we just went, because I, I don't think you would lose a lot if you just went back. Because right, you know, the, the frontier that we reached was like, we're, you know, in, especially on Facebook, I'm optimizing for value. I'm optimizing for ROAS, right? And that was like the sort of the final form of, of, of mobile advertising measurement. It's like, I'm telling Facebook, give me 110% ROAS on day seven. If you do that, I don't care how you target, who you target, um, you yeah, know. How much the CPIs are. How much the yeah. CPI is, irre is irrelevant. I've got unlimited funds, yeah. you know, from a, from a sort of like practical standpoint on any given day, spend as much as you can, but just make sure I'm getting 110%. That was the final form. And I think even if we sort of like retreated from there back to just like CPI, the average LTV of this campaign is X and the average, you know, the CPI was Y. And so therefore I'm making money. That would be much less efficient, but still like it's workable. Right now what we have is not workable. Yeah. Well, um, I think you and I could riff on all this wonky stuff for, for another couple yeah. of hours. Yeah. And um, I hope Apple's listening and actually going to make some changes and listen better now that they're starting to see some of this stuff. But I did, I did want to change gears and kind of start talking through what this means for developers and specifically, you know, subclub podcast, what it means for subscription app developers and, and what you were just talking about, I think, I think is actually a really important topic that not a lot of people fully understand. You've written about it in the past, but I think it's still somewhat abstract enough um, that I wanted to, to kind of have you describe it in more concrete terms. And that's the fact that with these, you know, day seven ROAS campaigns and value optimization and event optimization campaigns, Facebook with all of its data and AI and, and incredible targeting efficiency has kind of in some ways been doing the job of developers. It's been finding those unique profiles, user profiles of who's actually going to spend money, who's actually going to enjoy the app. And, and it, it's like, in some ways they, they became this really efficient black box of user profiling and understanding users that developers had kind of in the past done and then maybe now need to get good at again in the future. You know, again, you've written about this before, but just describe that process maybe a little better of, of how amazing Facebook really was at finding the best users for an app. Well, they, they were, very, you know, as you said, very, very good at it, right? So, you know, it was based on like an approach that is was very simplistic, right? I mean, I just gonna, I mean, I'm gonna, if I can observe everything, then I know everything about this user and I can just target most relevant ads to them because I know everything about what they interact with, right? And I know what they like. And, you know, it gets to a point where that, that, that ability to observe is so pervasive that I, I do agree like that, that had gone too far. Like the pendulum had swung too far in that direction. Like it is not, I, I find it unsavory to think that like literally everything I do on my phone is observed 
and instrumented and ingested as a data point by one company, right? Like that's, I'm uncomfortable with that. So, you know, and, but, but like, I think, you know, to your point, like going, you know, if you go back to when, when UAC was introduced, right? So Google, their mobile product UAC is that's, they describe it. I think they themselves describe it as a black box as like a selling point, right? Because it's like, look, don't worry about any of that. You will handle all of this difficult analysis for you. We'll find the best users for you. You don't have to iterate across audience uh, definitions or even creative, you know, and do all that experimentation yourself. We'll do that on your behalf with our superior tools. And when they announced that, there was a lot of, um, you know, disquietude in the in the developer community because people are like, look, we, we built this. We want to do it. I don't trust you to do it. I trust you to do it well, but I also trust it to do it to your advantage, right? Or I, right. To, in, to, 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 in pursuit of your best interest, not, not necessarily mine. What I think you'll do, so this is, and this is exactly what these platforms do, is they sort of, they take whatever boundary you set or whatever standard you set around efficiency and they, they reach that, but no more right they'll they'll get you to exactly what you say is like the sort of quality threshold or the efficiency threshold for your campaigns to keep spending money but they won't give you any more than that right so they could blow out your campaigns and get you 400% roas uh, but if you told them you only need 110 by day 7 that's what that's what you're going to get and if they get you to that 400 then they're going to buy you a bunch of crappy traffic that brings the sort of average down until it hits that 110 right Right. And so, you know, that's that's the power that they had, um, which, you know, to be fair, it's like they were really good at that. And they're probably be- and, and and them being really good at it and them and them present and providing that as a product and productizing that and making that available to everyone meant that anyone could spin up a, a Facebook campaign. You know, any any Shopify retailer, any Shopify merchant, any small time app developer and spend money and grow their product, grow their audience. Right. Versus go back to 2012 and like, you know, the best UA teams won. And, and right. a lot of times these were like big teams, big companies that raised a lot of money. You know, now, you know, it is way more egalitarian to open it up to anybody. You know, the small shop owner in, I don't know, the middle of Kentucky or whatever could, could have access to this world-class machine learning infrastructure to grow their business, right? And then they only really had to compete on the quality of their product and not the quality of their user acquisition infrastructure. So in a way it, it was, uh, I mean, it, it was a giant gift to these SMBs. And 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 if and the proof is in the pudding, look at Facebook's advertiser mix, 10 million advertisers, vast majority SMBs, right? 10 million right. advertisers, right? Think about any company that has 10 million customers. That's right. a, a, just a, an absurd scale, right? And these are people spending, you know, in aggregate tons of money on Facebook. So like, it made sense, but, but you know, there was a lot of pushback when UAC announced that because developers like, look, we, that was our competitive advantage. Like, well, should it be? If we go back to basics right. and everybody has access to the same quality of infrastructure and the same quality of like sort of like, you know, uh, marketing tools, then it, then you can be on the basis of your product. So then are we kind of going back to that world? I mean, app tracking transparency is going to degrade Facebook's targeting efficiency because they're not going to have that pervasive tracking where they know everything that's going on on your smartphone. So. So where do we go from from here as far as you know what developers need to be thinking about and and I forget exactly when you wrote this post but but I really appreciated you, you kind of talked through some some tactics even around developers needing to get better at capturing intent about potentially kind of bifurcating experience in the app is that where where developers should be headed 
of, okay, now Facebook can't bring me the perfect user for my app as it exists today. Um, and instead, developers need to get back to the basics of understanding their user base and kind of building out those user profiles and understanding who they should be going after. Is, is that where we're headed? I think so. I mean, I think we talked about this last time I was on this podcast, but like, you know, so when I wrote my book, Freeman Economics, I mean, this was like 2013, right? And so this AEO didn't exist yet. You know, VO yeah. was, didn't exist yet. This was, you bought installed, right? And the idea of freemium or my, my sort of thesis with freemium is that like, it gives you the ultimate power to personalize. And so you need some minimum scale because you need a minimum amount of people to experiment with in order to make, you know, some small percentage of people that do monetize meaningful to you. Um, but in order to do that, you need like a sort of like very large surface area for experimentation, right? You need a lot of content to be able to test against people and make sure that you expose to them the exact perfect thing that they want. And in order to do that, you need a lot. And, and so what ended up happening was that idea flipped and it, and it became less about doing that in the product and more about doing that with the creative, right? And allowing Facebook to do right. that with, for your, on your behalf with the creative. And then they found the perfect user and you didn't do any personalization in the app because they brought you the perfect user. Just make the app for the perfect user, that individual profile, that one profile, the perfect app. You make that app, Facebook will find those people through like mass, you know, wide scale experimentation with creative. Well, now it's flipped again. And so, you know, when someone comes into your app, you don't know who they are. You don't know how qualified they are because the targeting has been degraded to the, to the point where, you know, th th there's, there's not a whole lot of of sort of like a priori, you know, relevancy that you can intuit there. And so you've got to parse that out from their behavior, show them something, see how they react to it. If they react positively to it, show them more of that. And if they don't show them more of something else. And, and that kind of personalization though, I mean, it's very powerful. And I talked, and that's, I wrote a whole book about it, but right. it's hard to do. You need a big team, you yeah. need data infrastructure. You need, that's, that's the thing. Then you revert back to like, well, only big developers can do this. Right. And right. so you kind of just edged out the small guy, you know, the developers that are just like a couple people and they got to just whiff or they, they got to take a flyer on some idea and they better hope that it works. Right. Versus being able to kind of iterate into that and provide one app that gives like personalized experiences to sort of everybody that comes through. Yeah. So then those, I mean, what would your advice be today? Knowing that you can't just, you know, throw a hundred grand at Facebook and let them figure out your perfect user how, you know, if you're, if you're building an app today from scratch, or let's say you're at 20 or $30,000 in MRR and you want to make that leap and really grow, what do you do? Well, I think so in, I mean, in that post, I mean, the one thing that is, you know, it's a worthwhile exercise, but is, is trying to instrument these, these signals with the conversion values for SK ad network. Now, the problem with that was, you know, going into this before ATT was launched and, you know, I work, you know, I worked with some companies to do this and it's like a data science exercise, right? You just, right. you, you run these, you know, you, you go back and you have like kind of look back models and you find out what the commonality was amongst people that ended up being good users. And you try to surface that in the app and you encode that as a signal for SK ad network. The problem is going into that exercise, thinking that SK ad network was like a good faith solution. Right. It made sense, but now we realize, well, we don't even know when they're going to, to, when they're gonna, how, how many of these we need to trigger before they even start reporting them to us, right? And so like, it's like, okay, well, that's not really an option. You know, I think the other thing is, you know, you approach this as more of like a product marketing, you know, project and and just trying to figure out who your audience is, right? And, and that's like going back to basics. That's saying, okay, like what yeah. are the demo features of the groups that like this type of product? And that's what I have to target against, right? right. And then just, and then trying to get, you know, cause you can't do mass creative testing anymore. 
at least not on iOS. And so, you know, trying to work out some pipeline of like, we try concepts on Android where we can still do kind of mass testing. And then we promote the, the, the conceptual winners to iOS, but then we've got, you know, fewer variants to test there. So we've got to kind of adapt that for the iOS environment. Like it's just, you lose a lot of, there's very lossy that each time you, you sort of transfer some sort of component of understanding from a totally separate platform to iOS. And then from iOS to like different environments to, to, to other environments on iOS, you just, you lose signal there, you lose precision. So, I mean, it's, it's, but th th that's it. Right. And then, you know, trying to get away. So I think another thing is that, you know, you talk to some of these companies and Facebook had become like kind of a drug for them. I mean, it's just like <laughs> they were addicted to it and it, it was just so easy to only use Facebook. Right. Right. Because you could accomplish pretty much everything you wanted to, but you know, that's a classic, you know, sort of, uh, that, that, that's a classic sort of blunder from a, from just a commercial perspective. You never want to be totally dependent on another platform. You know, now right. Facebook didn't make this decision, Apple did, but, you know, nonetheless, you know, you're sort of devastated by it, right? Because of that dependency. So I think, you know, the other, the other piece of this is just trying to, is doing doing the work you should have done a long time ago, which is to diversify your traffic mix, right? And yeah. that's actually kind of difficult, like, because Facebook, again, they did all that creative exploration for you. You know, they have such a broad user base that you could find all these different groups in scale, right? At To, to scale, like even niche audiences, niche like any any sort of like niche 4x strategy game you find enough people to build out a big dau base and that's not true on all the other platforms right and you got to really nail the form factor for those like snap it's totally different like the way to approach snap is totally different than facebook the way to approach tiktok is totally different than snap right, right. the way to approach outbrain tabula totally different than any of those you know the way to approach youtube is even different like every all these these are very you know particular um unique channels and 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 the way that the ads are are exposed in the products is different across them and so you've got to you've got to go through the work and the investment it's you're investing in the data and 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 sort of institutional knowledge and a lot of people just never went through that exercise because it's like i can just spin up right. i can spend more on facebook yeah and where do you think organics fall into this mix i know like we talked to all trails on the on the episode before this and not only are they a, a unicorn app, um, likely in valuation, but in in their success with organics. I mean, there are apps that just find incredible success with that right kind of search optimization or finding that right niche that really drives organic installs. Where do you think the average app should be placing organic and how much focus should they be putting on trying to get some of this free attention and build, you know, user generated content and links and, and things like that. I mean, do it to, to the extent that you can. I mean, why not? Um, you know, I, I don't think you've got to choose one or the other, right? I mean, you should be ideally maximizing the effect of both of these strategies. But I will say one thing, it's that you always have to turn on paid UA, right? You've always got to turn yeah. on paid marketing. There's varying, you know, sort of timelines, you know, over which you have to confront that reality, but it is a reality. You've always got to turn it on. And like, I've done enough like advisory for like private equity funds and just big companies that are looking to buy other companies. And it's always, the reason they bring me on is because I'm going to say, we could triple this business if you did paid UA, right? right? We could quadruple this, like how, how, what's, how much, how much bigger could this get, right? Right. And you know what I mean? Like there's always a point where they've capped out. They never developed this, you know, expertise internally. 
right? It never became like domain knowledge that they possessed. And for that reason, there have been a lot of false starts because it's like, well, we can always sort of lean back on organic and it's going to take time to spin up paid and they bring someone in and within two months, they haven't really materially improved the business and they spend a bunch of money so they get fired or, you know, they get their budget cut and they quit and then they do that three more times and then they realize we're stalled out in growth um, and no one wants to come work to be our CMO because like it's pretty obvious that they're not going to get you know, the full freedom and the only way to sort of like break out of that cycle is to have the company get acquired, right, by a private equity fund is going to say, yeah, we're going to bring in a CMO and, you know, these management's kind of gone and or they're gone, but or they can stay, but they have to play ball with the new, you know, the new execs and um, and we're just going to spin up paid marketing. And that's and that's how we grow this asset. And that's how we make our money. Uh, so I've just been on enough of those deals where you, you always turn on paid UA if you even if you even yeah. if you think you never will. Uh, it happens, uh, you know, outside of your uh, approval. Yeah, and I didn't mean to phrase a question in any way that, that made it a, a black or white, that you had to choose one or over the other. And, and actually, I was, I was trying to, to, to kind of uh, throw a softball at you um, because I, I think your, your thinking on this um, is great in that the sooner you do spin up some level of paid marketing, the sooner you, you can understand the different audiences that are going to be coming into the app. And, and that's something you've talked a lot about that I think is really fascinating is that, yeah, if you can find a good organic channel, go for it and bring traffic in, but know that when you spin up ads, those, that traffic's going to look different. They're going to convert different. Right. They're going to be interested in different things. And if you, yeah, I, I'm stealing your, your kind of playbook. Yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Tell me why you think, um, even if you do have a very successful organic channel and maybe that's the strategy you kind of get from 10 K a month to a hundred, 300 K a month, but to get from there to the millions a month, you're going to have to spin it up. So what's the playbook for, for kind of building that expertise in house. And when do you start, when do you have to start ramping it up? So, Thank you for reminding me of, of my own thoughts here. Uh, so, so the idea, the, the idea there is like organic's never going to be the ultimate scale channel, right? Like it's gonna, it's right. gonna, it's it's gonna, you're gonna reach some sort of asymptote with growth there, and and it's gonna flatten out. And probably at you know, if you kind of close your eyes and you pictured your app at like the sort of greatest potential, right? The, the sort of like greatest sort of like intrinsic potential paid is eighty percent of daily you know new users, right? or 60 or whatever, but it's a majority. And so if you've only, you know, grown via, you know, just sort of like organic traction and organic like magnetism, and you've, you've gone through like many sort of cycles of app or product iteration to sort of optimize the product for that group of people that do look distinct, that will look distinct from people that have responded to some kind of stimulus, right? And have some sort of intent it, um, sort of like, you know, driving their, their adoption of your product, then you've optimized for the group that's that at the greatest potential scale of your, of your product is a minority. Right. right. And what you really want to do is you want to optimize the product for the majority that where all the growth, where the growth can be. Right. And so that, you know, if you delay layering in paid traffic and you, and you delay, then you delay understanding what they want out of your product. And the sooner you bring that in, the sooner you can sort of optimize the product for them, the, the more efficient your pay traction will be. And you're, you'll get an organic halo effect from that, right? And so yeah. like, it's like, well, the sooner that you do that, the, the faster that you sort of reach that, that sort of, uh, you, you reach that potential on the organic side. 
So it's, it's more about like you know, the opt you thinking about like how, I mean, an exercise that I always love to do is just like pause and think about like, what would success look like? And for most apps, success looks like, yeah, we're spending a ton of money on paid UA. And there's a lot of organic too, because that's just a function of being a successful app that a lot of people know about. But, but we're spending a ton on UA and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. Right. Um, and so, but, but the majority of our users came in through paid UA. And so we've optimized the app for them. Um, and so we've, we've, we've made the economics better over time. And, and then the other piece is like, and I've talked about this a lot too. It's like, you've got to change that over, over the, the life cycle of your app. It, because, you know, a lot of times what you see is, you know, you see an app that's new and they've got like explosive growth, right? And you look at the, the just like a kind of stacked uh, bar chart of the cohorts by age. And it's like, well, on any given day, the vast majority of users are new or they're less than a month old, right? And then like you go, you fast forward two years or three years and a really good app, that'll be flipped because you've, right. you've retained people. The, the, the vast majority of the people that use your product every day are old. I mean, in terms of like when they adopted your product because it's sticky, because it's retentive, right? And that's a, that's a great place to be, but that, that you've got to change the way that you think about product optimization at that point. Like when you're going through the product iteration process, like, well, you're not optimizing for the newbies anymore because there's way fewer of them. You've got to keep the old timers involved and engaged and happy, right? Because, you know, that's just where the, the vast majority of your, your revenue is coming from, right? And, and you know, and, and at that point, you've probably reached, you know, some proportion of your TAM. And so you might not even be doing new user acquisition as such anymore. You might be doing a lot of retargeting, re-engagement. And so it's just like, that you, you got to be very conscious of like the life cycle of the app, what the what the user base looks like in terms of composition by age and like all that kind of stuff. And it just it just takes a lot of consideration. And it's it's you know, and if you get to any point where like any of those any of those distributions is, is skewed to an extreme uh, to an extreme one direction or the other, you probably got a problem. Like if you're all organic, you're not you're leaving money on the table. If you're all old timers, well, you're not growing anymore. If you're all newbies, right. you're not retaining enough. Right. It's like all these different levers that you got to pull to make sure that you hit the optimal sort of combination. Yeah, that's great stuff. I love the way you put that, too. I, I think there is some level of kind of magical thinking that if I have just the right app, I never have to do marketing. Marketing's a dirty word. Spending money on marketing is 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 wasteful or only companies with bad products have to do marketing. And like, that's just not true. And, and what's especially funny is like, you know, a lot of these folks are, are like indie developers who hold up Apple to be the end all be all. Apple spends tens of billions of dollars on marketing. Yeah. Apple measures that marketing <laughs> while at the same time, you know, enacting ATT. So it is funny, the kind of dichotomy of and the magical thinking of like, I, I shouldn't have to pay for users. My product should be good enough or, or whatever. Like it, it really is just magical thinking. And ultimately, you know, spending money on marketing is a good thing, not a bad thing. I, I love that perspective. Yeah, my uh, we had a Halloween party for uh, my son and his um, his like classmates, and he's he's very young. And he was he he like he did this thing where he, he wanted to be two things for Halloween. So they had like a you know a parade at their school, and then a, we had you know we just ha Halloween day kind of trick or treating and stuff. Anyway, so he wanted to be a dinosaur, and then he decided he wanted to be a vampire for the Halloween day. And so we had to get him in a second costume. He was a vampire. And, uh, and you know, we were having this party. And uh, someone was like, oh, you look like such a scary vampire. And, uh, and I, I was like, oh, no, I work in digital advertising. I'll show you what a vampire looks like. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, it's just this idea that, like, digital advertising, oh, man, it's, it's so disgusting. It's, it's a right. crass, 
gross. You're spending money. You had to spend money to acquire a user. <laughs> that's that's uh, that's 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 so uh, vulgar. But like in the reality, it's like well, you're leaving money on the table if you could be doing it and you're not. Right. Right. Like that's not good. Yeah, totally. So, so uh, that that's actually a great place to wrap up. Like, where where do we go from here? So, ATT is what it is. We don't know what Apple's going to do. We hope they make things better. But um, what is the future of of app install ads? What is the future of of marketing your app successfully? I, you know, it's funny because like I I have been the biggest like crypto skeptic since day one, and I remember like I people were telling me about Bitcoin in like 2011. I was like, this is a joke. Like this is a, there's no need for this. There's no use case for this. And I still kind of feel that way, but like it's gotten to a point where I, I feel like it's actually inculcating new behaviors where this is just, crypto in general is probably the thing that introduces us to these ideas. And it's like sort of an imperfect way to implement them, but it sort of makes us think about them. And then there's gonna be a solution that follows like the structure of crypto that is is actually like the better way to, to to implement these ideas. But I've worked with a number of like Web3 gaming companies, right? And and like their challenge is they, they can't be on the app store, right? So they're running like web properties. And how do you promote that? And well, the thing is like, you, if you're running it on the web, you can access it from your mobile device, right? I mean, I can access these games from my mobile, my device It's just not on the app store. And I think like, if you get one of these that blows up, you get the halo of Web3 games, right? You get the, you know, just hit game that creates the space for this category to thrive. Then maybe it just becomes, uh, you know, acknowledged that, well, yeah, we can go through the app store if we want specific types of games. But if we want these other types of games, we just go straight to the browser. Now, my big question is, why did Apple do Private Relay in the first place? And maybe it was to actually route everything through the app store, right? That would be the cynical kind of conspiratorial take, right? It's just that they want to prevent your access to the open web or they want to gatekeep it. And so they're going to decide what you're able to access, right? But anyway, so there's a lot of Web3 companies thinking about this right now. Like they can't go to the app store, right? So there's no app install ads for them. It's all web-based. Um, and, and also, you know, they've done a great, a lot of these Web3 companies have done a great job of fostering community-driven marketing right? Getting a Discord server with 20,000, 100,000 people in it. And that's that's where you advertise, right? And you drive, you never have to pay for anything. And now, now that's a first mover kind of thing. And I think that sort of declines as more people get, enter the space, right? And there's just, you know, there's just too many of these these sort of games to, to sort of rely on that. But a lot of companies are thinking about that right now. How do we drive people to the web to do acquisition, right? A lot of, you know, as you know, a lot of uh, subscription companies have been doing that for a long time. Right. There are well-worn strategies for doing this. Right. And they've been monetizing that way for a long time, too. They haven't been screaming about it. Right. But they've been doing it. And, yep. you know, now that, well, OK, now that's 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 a policy that's allowed. To, you're allowed to do that. Apple blesses. Well, they don't. They anyway, they say we can't stop you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so maybe a consequence of this whole thing is that it just moves people into the browser. Right. And, and you know, there's the Web3 piece of it, which who knows, maybe that is a dud. Maybe it's a gigantic category. I think I'm not convinced either way yet. But like, you know, you've got people that are saying, I'm going to set up web shops. And, you know, I made the point that like, look, I don't think that, you know, there's 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 systematic reasons why that probably doesn't like become a mass scale solution. Um, and a lot of people are doing that anyway. A lot of games are doing that anyway. That's the other sort of dirty little secret. A lot of gaming companies were sending emails saying, hey, you know what? Don't buy these IEPs in the app because if you go to our website, it's 20 percent off or whatever. They're already doing it. They already had web shops set up. 
And, you know, but, but anyway, um, you know, I think maybe that's a consequence of this is just like we move in that direction. Now, maybe Apple then clamps down harder and they say, nope, private relay, we're blocking that. Um, maybe they do that for Web3. Maybe they do that for whatever to protect people. I, who knows? I, but I, I think like there's that idea, like, let's just move people to the web. We've got more control there. It's just it's just a better storefront, right? Like I talked about that on the on, on the strategy podcast. It's a better storefront. It's your, you have way more opportunity to do cool things there. Personalization. Uh, like real-time optimization, things that you just can't do with the with the app store because it's you know limited in the number of SKUs and, and all that. Um, and then, but then maybe the other thing is just like, well, we just we fundamentally shift the way we think about measurement, right? It's all about incrementality. It's all about media mix models. It's all about sort of like statistical probabilistic thinking, and that's probably a good thing too because like you know that's you can make that work. At scale, they just still leave the smaller folks struggling right. to get to scale. Right, it does. Yeah. But but you can make that work at scale and there's no privacy concerns, right? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't know where you're going with the whole Web3 thing, but I think you landed that well. I, and I think you're right that, you know, it does feel like this, you know, Apple, it's the old, you know, the, the tighter you hold on to something, the more it struggles to get free. And the, the more Apple continues clamping down on the App Store, the more they're pushing developers to think outside of the app store. And, you know, we've seen a lot of our uh, revenue cat customers build out web onboarding and experiment with more and more stuff on the web because of this. So, yeah, I think, I think that's really interesting. And then, um, and then seeing what, you know, the Facebooks of the world can do with this new paradigm of, you know, they can still collect a lot of first party data some of their signaling is is gone, but uh, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, the kind of solutions they build in the, in the coming years to kind of bridge some of that gap. And, and I think, yeah, probabilistic and incrementality and all that's going to going to play big. All right, well, let's uh, let's wrap it up then. Um, anything else you wanted to share? And uh, uh, we're going to link to your uh, LinkedIn and to Mobile Dev Memo and your Twitter uh, in the show notes. But anything else you wanted to share before we wrap up? No, I mean, I just, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, 2022, I don't talk about HT at all. I would, I would love it. I would love it if, you know, I could get back to just talking about stuff that I think is more evergreen and, and conceptual versus just like very, you know, specific policy level. Um, I don't know. We'll see Apple. Maybe they reel me back in and they do something else that is, uh, <laughs> is, is, is extreme or egregious, but uh, I don't know. I just, I think it's, it's, you know, it happened, it happened. I wrote a post the other day and I was like, look, this happened. It's had a ma massive impact. Probably not going to go away. I don't think there's going to be a reversal. So you gotta live, you gotta learn to live with it. And, right. um, and that's, you know, and, and ultimately I think, you know, companies will do that. And, and it's, it's also just like a really exciting time. Like this is like, this is probably like the start of a new era of like marketing science and thinking about measurement and thinking about how to bridge that with product design and product development in like really cool ways. Um, so there's a lot of org org design stuff that that's going to get changed as a result of this. I don't know that you have like a standalone marketing team uh, or like a UA team as such, right? Like if you're thinking about media mix models, like what's your UA team? Um, right. And so, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, it's just, it's just a lot of change and a lot of exciting change, a lot of opportunity. There's always opportunity and change. Ah, that's a great place to leave it. I, opportunity all across the board. I think, yeah, there's opportunity for apps to find new ways to find users and opportunities to fill those gaps uh, in in the tooling as well. So, 
Well, Eric, thanks so much for being on the podcast. And uh, yeah, hopefully we can have you on in 2022 and not talk about ATT. We'll make that a goal. Fingers crossed. (laughs) All right. Thank you, Eric. All right. Take care, buddy. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Thank you.